Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It has been a joy this morning to have with us Randall Krosner of the Booth School of Chicago. We're thrilled that the former governor of the Federal Reserve continues with us at Queen Victoria Street. And sitting with me in New York is Alan Ruskin, chief international strategist for Deutsche Bank as well. If you could bring up this chart, we ran this by Randy Krosner here moments ago. I want to run it by Alan Ruskin as well. We had QE, and then we rolled over and we had QT. And Alan, we got a new set of options based around this repo market reality. One was a certitude of QT, the yellow line. One was the flat line. And the new news is we may expand the balance sheet. Is that the Deutsche Bank view? I think uh, what you saw from Chairman Powell is a reasonable uh, characterization of where we're at. I think you'd look and see how effective the repos are. We've got some special circumstances now in terms of mm. draining factors, uh, you know, particularly right. from uh, settlements and uh, you know, just generally treasury balances. But uh, it looks like uh, the excess reserves that are in the system right. are, are not doing their job as such. And it does look like we're going to need more reserves. So I think you know, ultimately the organic path is probably Probably to that green line, to the top side. To the, to the light blue line, to the top side. Okay, I want you to speak to the academics. And one of the charms of Raghu Rajan and Randy Krosner at Booth School, like your charm at LSE, is you guys actually understand there's a market out there. Explain to the academic economist purists why they need to pay attention to the repo market. Explain to the monetary theoreticians why all this matters. Well, it certainly matters that the Federal Reserve has control of the very front end of the curve. Um, that's the anchor to the whole yield curve. So at a minimum, they want to be able to hit their effective funds rate target. It pretty much sets uh, the tone for the rest of the curve. Um, you don't really want extreme levels of volatility either. That sort of sets in tune you know, questions about uh, effectiveness of monetary policy, whether um, the Federal Reserve can uh, also uh, quash uh, short-term volatility as well at the, at, at the front end of the curve. So um, they want control. Okay, they want control, and we were talking about this with you, Randy Krosner. Is there anything, what can the Fed do now to fix this more permanently? So I think uh, there are uh, at least two things that they, they could do. One is, exactly as Ellen said, uh, allow the balance sheet to, to continue to grow. We talked about that before. And also they could set up a facility that allows for more reserves to come into the system just naturally as rates go up. Rather than the Fed having to decide, well, we're going to put in $20 billion, uh, at 11 a.m. or $10 billion at 11 a.m., we, uh, the Fed does estimates of how much is needed each day. It's difficult to get those estimates right. Why not let the market decide that you, so you effectively could just have a standing facility that no. if rates go above uh, the target by a certain amount, then you just provide as, as much as, as you need at that, and that would help to provide some stability there. Um, Randy, if there was a liquidity problem in the markets, like a real liquidity problem in the markets, where would we see it first? <laughs> So I think this is exactly where you would see it in these money markets. You see these, uh, these short-term rates spike up because people need the cash and they need it now. They don't need it tomorrow. They need it now. And these are these, these kind of now rates. Um, if you look at, uh, Alan, you know, the impact on the rest of the markets, does it have an impact on some of the other uh, central banks around the world on, on how they should look at liquidity? Um, 
Not a, to a great degree, but I think what you have seen is that uh, just temporarily there was some linkage between um, currencies and uh, the tightness in the liquidity markets or the dollar liquidity markets. So uh, you did see, for example, as things tightened up, the dollar uh, briefly went through a spell where it actually did quite well. And then when things eased up, uh, the dollar gave back something. So, you know, some of that relates obviously to, the, you know, where the sources of funding. Uh, some of the funding comes through the cross-currency basis uh, market. So, um, you know, there is a linkage there as well. Um, I think the other central banks have got, you know, obviously other issues. You don't see a particular natural spillover as yet in terms of uh, tension and right. illiquidity in other markets. Liz Capo McCormick publishing on the Australian, the cross-currency dynamics between Australia and all this last uh, night. Randy Krosner, Alan Greenspan wrote a wonderful book, The Age of Turbulence. In the math world of you and Alan Ruskin, turbulence is that absolute off the other side of the equation. What's the new epsilon? What have we learned this week about the new volatility that Mr. Ruskin was talking about moments ago? Well, I think that's right. I think uh, these these challenges and volatility of the market uh, and the liquidity of the market, that's really, it's the financial plumbing. It's the base for, for everything. And when it's working normally, we don't even think about it. It's just like the plumbing in your house. You never think about it working. But man, if it gets backed up, you know that you want to run from that house. It causes all sorts of troubles. And it's foundational. For it can cause volatility in other markets. It can cause difficulties for just making uh, making payments. And so I think what we need to really do is think about: Do we have the right institutions to make sure we have the smooth functioning of the markets? And that's why uh, allowing the balance sheet to grow organically. That's why having a facility like many other central banks have to just naturally provide more uh, more reserves into the system, rather than the New York Fed and and uh, the Federal Reserve in Washington try to estimate each day what the right number is. That those might be ways to go to smooth it out. But still, there are fundamental fragilities that are there that may be unintended consequences of regulation, and we need a, a kind of a bigger rethink about what those are. Thank you so much. Randy Krosner there, very generous with his time this morning, of University of Chicago Booth School and Alan Ruskin from Deutsche Bank. Why don't you bring in Michelle? Seema Shah joining us now, Principal Global Investors Chief Strategist, joining us out of London. Seema, you live it every single day, so walk us through what on earth is the latest twist and turn in the never-ending Brexit story. Yeah, it's certainly never-ending. Um, to be honest, this, this latest twist is, I think, a little bit more of nothing. Uh, I don't think we've learned anything new. Uh, if we listen really to what Junker said, I don't think he's given any clear information about a, post a potential deal. Um, and certainly, if you've just heard from the Ireland uh, finance minister, they're certainly suggesting that the UK is still far away from, from getting any kind of deal. The Irish throwing cold water on the whole thing, and we've still got to wait to see what the Supreme Court says about the ruling on Boris Johnson suspending Parliament. Any insight on that whatsoever, Seema? Well, I mean, it's an interesting one. And, and then again, it doesn't really likely have any impact on Brexit whatsoever unless you were to have a completely drastic ruling, which meant that everyone was brought back in and a lot of the power was taken away from Boris, which seems extremely unlikely at this stage. I think for us what's been really interesting is that people are still have some optimism about Brexit and having sterling at around 125 against the dollar is to us quite surprising. Does that capture some optimism, Seema, at 125? 
It must do. It, it must be that people are taking away the risk of a no-deal Brexit. For us, we would say there's still about a 20 to 25 percent chance of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any advancement in negotiations whatsoever. We still have no idea what any deal that Boris has in mind is. Um, and of course, then we're hearing that the, you know, the chance of a general election are increasing, which adds to more uncertainty. So if anything, actually going into October, we would have expected Sterling to be closer to the 120 mark rather than the 125 mark. So tell us what you're telling clients about what they should be doing right now. I think that look, if whatever we know, we know that Brexit at some point is likely to happen. We know that there's going to be a prolonged period of uncertainty. To us, that means that the UK economy is going to be weakening. So if you are willing to wait it out and wait for a no-deal Brexit or whatever form of Brexit it is, then at some point then there may be value ahead for any kind of assets, UK assets. The thing is, is that if you want to get back into the UK at that point, you still have to have a very, very strong stomach for the macro weakness that's likely to ensue and also the lot of volatility that's likely to come. Because like a Brexit doesn't mean that there's certainty. Businesses still have no idea what Brexit means and how they will have to operate under what conditions. So if anything, Brexit means yeah. more uncertainty. I want to take it, Seema, to a broader view, your work with principal global investors and in, in almost like a strategy into October. John and I and all of our listeners worldwide are getting bombarded by this story. This story is cacophony the right word, John? I think it can it's go It's a good there. word. There's a cacophony of stuff going on. How do you synthesize that into a cogent message for principal global investors? I have to say it, ha it is a very, very difficult period for investors. And one of the reasons is, is it's not just a geopolitical atmosphere, which is quite volatile, but also the macro picture is quite uncertain. For us, what we've tried to do is we're trying to take a step back and look at what are the fundamentals. Now, that doesn't mean you take away your eyes from the headlines, because the headlines at this stage have a potential to hit. And what I mean by that is we can see equity markets doing relatively well over the rest of the year. So I mean a very modest rally. And that is assuming that the global economy recovers, starts to recover or stabilizes even towards the end of the year. But it also has to imply that, that none of the shocks that are threatening the global economy come to fruition. So in other words, the market yeah. is almost priced for perfection. Okay, I'll go with that. The, mar the equity market is clearly priced for perfection. Have we become immune to the dreaded exogenous shock? I don't think we're immune because if you see how markets fluctuate um, with every single headline, I don't think they're becoming immune. But it has been somewhat interesting to us that when you consider where equity markets are compared to the underlying economy, it's so much stronger. That dislocation has not disappeared. It's telling us that investors yeah. simply just want to put their money to work, uh, which in some ways is surprising. But I think we just have to get on the back of that. And you have seen some capitulation from right. a number of investors who have had a very bearish um, outlook for a while now and now are having to get back on top of this and, and get behind the equity market rally. I mean, you have two shingles from the London School of Economics. I know you went through their international relations course. Is it always been like this? I mean, if you go back to classic LSE on like the beginning, the advent of World War II or even back beyond that, has the cacophony we've been in since August normal or is this like a new thing because of new technology, new information transfer? I think it's something of a new thing, and I really think it's down to actually the politicians that we have um, in the, the global economy. The amount of geopolitical risks, it's an upheaval of what has become a 
global norm for a number of decades is now being disrupted. And I think that is really what's driving a lot of the volatility and uncertainty, which is circling investors every day now. Seema, this has been Thank wonderful. You, Don't be a stranger. Seema Shah with us uh, from London. Thrilled that she could be with us today with Principal Global Investors. Right now, I want to get a snapshot, John, of the American economy. But before that, we must digress because it's far too important. Brighton and Hove Albion, is that how you pronounce that? That's right. It, are, are they like are they like a relegated coming up a better team or have they been there for years? I mean, I they're know doing nothing. okay. They're doing okay. And they're going to play Newcastle. Yeah. Should we bring in someone with some perspective? He, he might Ian have Shepherd? a little bit of something about Newcastle. Yeah. Ian Shepherdson with us with Pantheon. We're going to get to the American economy, but it's fun, Ian, for me to watch Newcastle because it's like totally different than the fancy pants Tottenham, you know, and fancy new stadium. I mean, Newcastle's a breath of fresh air to watch. Well, uh, I wouldn't know, Tom, because I've given up my season ticket after 23 years. Why did uh, you do that? Is this austerity? Well, it's, it's, it's my protest against the ownership. Uh, not another penny goes to Mike Ashley. Not another penny. Can you just I'm explain out. to Tom who Mike Ashley is, Ian? Because Mike Ashley is is the repellent character who bought the club about ten years ago and has kind of run it into the ground. So this is this is my. Pro- I'm not the only one protesting. There's about ten thousand other season ticket yeah. holders who haven't renewed. He so, owns yeah, like the uh, equivalent of Foot Locker in the United Kingdom. Okay. Sports Direct. Okay. He owns Got all it. these big chains of sports yeah, stores yeah. in the UK. He also owns Newcastle United. I'm going to segue this right over to the expertise of Pantheon Economics. The consumer in the United Kingdom at their Foot Locker, how's our Foot Locker doing? How is the consumer, Ian Shepherdson, in America? Oh, the consumer's fine. I mean, the consumer is dragging along the whole economy. Uh, it looks to me like we're going to get another 3% plus uh, quarter in the third quarter, which is really very good going, given that we've seen business confidence really take a pounding from the trade war. Uh, actually, the trade war might be helping consumer spending right now because it looks to me, uh, looking at the chain store sales numbers, that people have been pulling forward uh, purchases of consumer goods because they know that the tariffs uh, are coming. There were tariffs were imposed September 1st, so they'll start hitting the stores next month. So people look to have been spending more, like bringing forward some maybe some of their holiday purchases uh, just to avoid the tariff hit. So that's going to flatter the third quarter. It, it's the fourth quarter and beyond that I'm a bit nervous about. But, I mean, certainly compared to the corporate sector, the consumer's pretty Well, good. a bit nervous about Bullard or a bit nervous about Rosengrin George? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I've got to say I'm, I'm more on the Rosengrin George uh, yeah. end of the spectrum. Uh, Bullard today talking about needing to yeah. take uh, action downside inflation risks. Yeah, but the fact is that core CPI inflation now is 2.4%. A few months ago, it was 2%. It hasn't been above 2.4% right. years. So I'm not quite sure where he's coming from. You know, we, we know there's some stuff in the pipeline from tariffs and some other things that's going to push inflation higher. So yeah. I think that uh, that low inflation ship, you know, I think maybe it's sailed, and I'm not quite sure why Bullard is hanging on to it so tightly. Uh, Ian Shepard said moments ago, I'm sure you haven't seen this because it just came out seconds ago, literally from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, Mr. Rosengren commenting on dissenting vote at the meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee. Folks, this is a formal document stating his dissent was that they should not cut rates. The first sentence, Ian Shepardson, the stance of monetary policy is accommodative. 
Do you agree with that, that right now, even before this 25-beep cut, that we were accommodative? Yes. I mean, real interest rates are zero, depending how you measure them. They're roughly zero. Uh, long-term rates, and some of them are, are below zero. Implied real mortgage rates are negative. Yeah. Household service costs, corporate debt service costs are rock, rock bottom. Yeah. So I'm looking for signs of, uh, of any um, lack of accommodation yeah. in monetary policy. I'm not seeing them. You know, I can, I can kind of understand this sort of insurance um, type approach, this risk management approach that Powell has talked about, because after all, today, core PCE inflation is 1.6%, and that's not terrifying at all. Um, I just think that maybe a bit of uh, forward thinking might, might, might make it clearer that actually that rate is going to rise. And that although the economy is going to weaken, I think that it's probably not going to roll over. So I think some of these tensions are, are going to emerge, but probably not in the way that Jim Bullard thinks, more in the way that Eric Rosengren thinks, in that actually inflation risk is not gone. But I've got to tell you, Tom, this is a hard thing to get over to people because, you know, we've, we haven't seen core CPI inflation above 3% for more than 20 years. I think we might see it again next next spring uh, because of the tariffs. And so the, the, the sort of disinflation, low inflation mindset is extremely deeply entrenched, just like the high inflation mindset was deeply entrenched in the 70s and 80s, and it took a generation to work it out. But maybe we've, we've, uh, we've got so many people now who can't remember any, any rising inflation environment that they kind of think, well, it can't happen. But actually, I think it probably can. Ian, quick final word on the repo operations that the New York Fed has been conducting. The former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, saying that you should get a grip. The Fed can handle the repo market. Do you agree with that, Ian? Are we going to smooth out some well, of the bumps of this week? <laughs> they can handle it if they keep doing repos on a very frequent basis. But if they don't, then it won't work because the reserves have shrunk so much that the IOER, uh, you know, Fed fund spread, which has caused the problem, uh, can't come down permanently without a permanent reserve ad. So it's either a permanent reserve ad or they have to do a lot more frequent repos. I can't really see yeah. any other solution. Ian Shepherdson, thank you so much with Pantheon. Nice update there. do this now we're gonna we're gonna spend this block and a little bit of the next block with a guy who's been all over the media on initial public offerings because he's the only one we know east of the hudson river that actually reads a damn prospectus rent wallace is with the triton uh, research and instead of going like what's we dog gonna do or what's peloton gonna do i want to talk for global wall street wallace how did we get here? We used to get the prospectuses. There was a dance. There was a ballet. And it just seems to be blown up in the last eight months or so. Um, well, it's longer than the last eight months in the sense that, you know, we, when we, Uber came out, we did the look back of Uber versus Microsoft when Microsoft went public in 1986 with a, you know, 50-page prospectus, right? And a much yeah. smaller business that was also much more profitable. So it was a simple, smaller, profitable business that could be described in 50 pages and people could understand what they were How long into. is the Uber or the WeDog prospectus now? 383 pages. What's in there <laughs> Nothing that's allowed good. us to enjoy no. these losses? Well, so that's what you want to do is you want to be able to build a model out of the materials that they give you in the prospectus. And unfortunately, right. you have to do 383 pages of what looks like it should contain the right information, and it doesn't. I mean, yep. this is well, this is sad. I mean, the, the, between the three of us in this room, we've read four thousand eight hundred twelve <laughs> prospectuses. Paul, so Red, for me, I mean, you know, it's interesting. We've had twenty nineteen was going to be the year of all these great tech IPOs. We had uh, all lined up Airbnb, WeWork, uh, yeah, yeah, Uber, yeah. Lyft, and all that kind of stuff. 
it hasn't been very good. And I'm going to go back to Uber because for me, that was kind of marked a sea change from the public markets, from uh, the private markets, which is the company did not do an adequate job, apparently, of kind of giving investors a sense of the path to profitability. How are you going to get the I understand you're not profit, profitable today. That's okay. But what's the path to profitability? They didn't do that, did they? Uh no, they didn't. But if you were going to, you know, indict the entire IPO market, I think you couldn't really do it just with, you know, Uber, you need Lyft. We yep. work now yep. as three points make a line. But I think they are clearly bifurcated from the rest of the companies that have gone public in a very successful showing this year. I mean, just Datadog and Cloudflare recently, like going above their ranges with yeah. great right. trading performance, shows you it really is a tale of two cities, not to use a de Blasioism. <laughs> but, um, you know, the guys who have a model that people understand, and when they show investors some respect and give them the numbers that yeah. they expect to see so that you can actually do the analysis correctly, it's different. I think, you know, Lyft, Uber, and now WeWork are all hyper-capitalized, hyper-opaque situations. And I think, you know, when we look at it, like, you know, as you guys know, we score these companies on, you know, a bunch of over a dozen criteria. But the three things that when we see them in combination, it's really a killer are big losses, which Lyft, Uber, and WeWork all had, opacity, right, when you can't actually look into the numbers and pencil out a model that makes sense. Like, okay, you're losing $2 billion today, but yep. I can see how I'm going to get my money back at some point. And then the third thing that I think WeWork has really shown is just arrogance. Right. And so when you have opacity and losses, the investors have to trust you. And the arrogance makes trust impossible to right. attain, which is, I think, why WeWork is having the trouble they're having right now. And one of the other things that's just really strikes me, and I've been in this business 30 years, is the mismatch right now in valuation between private markets, i.e. $47 billion for WeWork, and public markets, maybe t t price talk of $10 billion. I've never seen that before. And, I, and we're now seeing these mark-to-market -mark in, in the public markets that are materially different and lower than, in some cases higher, but uh, oftentimes sometimes lower this year. What's going on there? I mean, if I was going to be positive about it, what I'd say is this, that Uber and WeWork in particular are different kinds of companies in the sense that they've changed the world. I mean, I don't know about you guys, like I can't go back to a world that doesn't have Uber. Right. And I don't think we're going to go back to a world that doesn't have WeWork either, right? And so these were very big bold bets by investors that said, you know, we're onto something here that's growing very quickly and changing people's behavior in a really fundamental way. And so the products are great, right? And the companies are great. The disclosure to investors who are asked to take over for the private market investors is well, the thing that you can quibble with because it's like, okay, well, the people who had access to perfect data on the private side paid one price. And now based right. on the information we can see in the public side, that price doesn't seem to make but a lot I, of sense. I, take, I, I totally agree with what you just said, except I take grave issue with it. In the old days, you went public and in the transaction, the public corpus was the majority of the company. These are essentially private transaction people selling a stub item, which mm -hmm. is how, how, how stubby is stubby. If you spin off WeWorks, well, these, I mean, they're usually like, 10 to 20 percent of the company is what they okay, sell. I was going to say six percent. Right. But they're, they're doing split the difference. They're selling off 15 percent of the company. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me that's a public company? I mean, well, that's what Microsoft did. And also, by the way, like, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer Fair, sold did, into the IPO. Right. So they took money off the table in that IPO. So I think structurally, okay, I it's similar. Corrected. It's I just the size corrected. is different. Right. Because, you didn't, I mean, you know, it's yeah. only an accounting technicality that makes Uber a $10 billion company. Yeah. Really, their GMV is $50 billion. So it's a gigantic company. Yeah. Can, can you stay around? 
Sure. Okay. I'm just, you know, he's the only one. I If I need 8,000 <laughs> 8, shares of weed dog, oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's the only call one you that's going to. And uh, surveillance clarity here. We always are going for clarity. I say weed dog like I say bit dog. Like, you know, it's like, really, are you? And I know, folks, I'm editorializing. Save me. Data dog, dog. is not a dog. No. That's no. the name of the company. That Data is the dog. name of the company. That's the name of the company. Remember yep. Dogpile before Google? <laughs> no, I don't. Before Google bought the algorithms of Dogpile. Dogpile, when it came out, it was like stunning. It was like, what is this search engine? Dog and that pile. was, this is ancient, this is before your time. I think of the globe.com as the sort of poster child of dumb, you know, dot-com bubble companies. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about just as far as how things have changed, yeah. if you look at WeWork, WeWork is kind of its own little dot-com crash all by yeah. itself. Yep. Brett Wallace, Triton with his wisdom on your next IPO allocation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.